0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of a changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 14th, 2018. This is episode two thousand. 346 of the survival podcast 2346 and I've got a great one for you because well it's all about you guys this is the expert council Q a show the monster show of the week all of these uh, questions came in from you guys out there for different members of the expert council I've got a really diverse group of stuff for you today here's what we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about free range and pastured poultry and what the difference what do these words actually mean? With Darby Simpson we 're not about saving for your child 's future and building a business as part of that with John pugliano we 're going to talk about the ins and outs of tegraderm for wound treatment. What the hell is tegraderm don 't worry if you don't know by the time Doc Bones is finished today you will we're not about making mead. I just did a show on this making mead over the winter. Well, what about making a mead this winter? Kind of a dynamite knock your socks off mead right now to be enjoyed this spring, as spring springs, you get a spring in your step from a spring mead. Of course, Michael Jordan will cover that. Uh, We have a a piece on the Bitcoin cash fork, which has caused all kinds of gnashing of teeth and misery in the crypto world, from Ben Fitz, along with a general crypto update. Uh, We have a segment on finding your true purpose in life, from Gary Collins. I'm going to chime in on that a little bit, too, and since that's kind of a deep subject, my anchor segment today Uh, is going to be my preferred method for making tea, because that will be a two- or three-minute segment. So uh, I figured I would make a nice, light, fun ending to the show, since I'm going to chime in on this Finding Your Purpose thing, too, because that can be kind of a deep thing. Before we get into all that, low, let's go ahead and take a look at this day in history. We're going back to the year 1799. Now, on this day, December the 14th, a lot of stuff happened um, Saturday Night Fever was released, yeah. Um, the, the first guy ever, a Norwegian, reached the South Pole. But the thing that I settled on was George Washington, first president of the United States, died on this day in 1799. There's a couple reasons I, I chose this. One, I had somebody email me recently and said you should do a presidential segment on John Hansen, the actual first president of the United States. Some of you are like, John Hanson, who? What? Um, John Hanson, technically, you could make a case he was the first president of the United States. He was the first president of the Continental Congress under the Articles of Confederation. And um, he really wasn't the first president of the United States. I think it actually is correct that our history books recognize Washington as our first president. Under the Articles of Confederation, there was a president that was more like a ceremonial title. You were appointed to it for one year, so there were eight of them over eight years uh, until we established the Constitution, and they really had no power. There was not even an executive branch. There was no executive branch. In some ways it would be like, today the vice president is the president of the Senate, Though he's really not necessary for the Senate to do anything, he just kind of shows up if there's a tie. If there's a 50-50 tie, then the vice president, as the president of the Senate, can cast the deciding vote. And so only in matters that are going to be razor thin does anybody in the Senate even give a damn about the vice president being the president of the Senate. Uh, In some ways, during the Continental – the the Articles of Confederation, I'm sorry – they gave a little bit more of a care because he was kind of around and did some paperwork and stuff like that, and, uh, but really had no authority. So the first president, in the way we think of the term, was Washington. There's a couple other things I wanted to, to bring this up for. Number one, Washington retired uh, after his second term in office and then finally went back to Mount Vernon, where he had attempted several times uh, since the Revolution to go and retire and had been called back to do things. And he only lived two more years before he passed away at 67. Now, um, I think there's a lesson there, in that if you want a meaningful retirement at some point, you have to say, hey, I'm done, and, and I don't want to do things anymore. On the other side of it, people with certain levels of service will continue to serve right up until the day they pass. And I think if Washington had felt the need in some way, he probably would have. So I think there is a lesson for us in that. The other reason I wanted to do this one is I have actually been to Mount Vernon and stood at the place that our first president died. His bed is still there um that he died in. They have and uh I will say that even as an anarchist, even as someone that has, you know, no religious affiliation with the state, um and and sees the state as as a temporary thing in in mankind's existence until we actually do build a civilized society, Um, I do have a reverence for the history of my nation. And standing in places like that can't help but connect you with the people that came before you that built what we have here in this country today. Um, I felt much the same when I took my son and my wife many years ago to uh, New York City and it had only been a few years since 9-11. I think it had been two years maybe. And there's a chapel right near the World Trade Centers. And this was known as the chapel that stood, like things just fell all around this thing and nothing landed in it. And as the rescue and recovery efforts were going on, it was the place that, that workers would go to and get something to eat and get a massage. It was like a base camp, this little chapel. And what this chapel is most known for, other than that, is that um, Washington used to attend this chapel, and there is a pew that's kind of roped off where he would sit and and be there for church. And that was another moment that it was like the father of our country, in many ways, that is an accurate statement, um, sat here in this place. And I would encourage you guys to, especially those of you with kids, to take your kids to places like this and explain to them what it is. Uh, we've talked about the Vietnam Memorial, etc. Uh, our country, while young compared to many, does have a rich history, and there is value in that history. And I think a lot of times people think that kids won't really appreciate it, and they may not at the time, but it will, it will become part of who they are, and they will remember it, and they will have an appreciation for it in the future. Um, In in my case, yeah, I took my son to see that place in New York. as I was an adult. But when I went to uh, Mount Vernon, uh, when I went to uh, a lot of places that I went to, like Gettysburg, et cetera, like that, I was in eighth grade. Um, And I still remember those things in those places to this day. So I definitely encourage you to consider taking your kids to places like this and explaining to them what, what this place that we call America is really all about and where it came from, because for the, all the the faults of our founders, they were great men that did amazing things, and many of them did really great things, you know, at very very young ages and were high achievers at very very young ages. At ages we don't even expect children to have um, become responsible enough to move outside of playing video games uh, today. Uh, they were they were commanding armies. And uh, there, is, there is something to be learned from those great men. With that, let's go ahead and get into your questions for the expert council. Uh, before I bring on our first expert council member today, Darby Simpson, I want to let you know a little quick announcement here. I am doing an MSB lifetime membership sale Monday. I will be selling 15 and only 15 memberships. They are $300. You become an MSB member for life. Last year I did this around this time. We did 20. They sold out in an hour. So expect that they will sell out quickly. Uh, they will go for sale at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time or JST, Jack Standard Time. Whenever I give you a time, I'm in Central Time, so that's the time I mean. 9 a.m. Monday morning. I will push a post onto the site. There'll be a form to fill out and sign up. Uh, and once you fill the form out, then you'll complete payment. And if you try to complete payment and it says sold out, I'm sorry. That's that's. I seriously limit these. I think it's part of what makes it cool for people to have. Uh, and I also feel like this point—you know, show's been around 10 years. So we're going to be around well over 10 more. Uh, we're not going anywhere, so I do think it's a safe investment for people as well. So if you've always wanted to be a lifetime member, your opportunity is coming, though fleeting it shall be. And with that, we have a question for Darby Simpson on the concept of free-range chickens versus pastured poultry. And what this all means somewhat what it should mean but what it doesn't mean depending on who uses it Eh, it'll all make sense when darby explains it darby uh sort this out for us
2: hey there everyone darby simpson back once again with another question for the tsp expert council this week i've got a question from geraldine and she's wanting to know if i can explain the difference between pastured chicken and free range um And I'll, I'll circle back to why Garoline sent this question in here in a moment. But just for the listening audience out there, I, I think a lot of times we hear the term free range and in our mind's eye, we envision a chicken out frolicking about, uh you know, pecking at some bugs, eating some grass, etc. Um, and this is something we run into occasionally with customers at the farmer's market because we direct sell everything we produce here on our farm. Um, and a lot of times I'll have to explain the difference between free range, something that says free range in a store, particularly if it's eggs and it says free range versus what we do, which is pastured poultry. Um, and I, i not, to be fair, I've not looked up the definition for free range in a few years, but I, I doubt it's changed much. And, and basically what free range means is that the, the chickens, uh, have a, a fixed building that they live in. Uh, They have a hole that gives them access to the outside. I, I think it even used to stipulate something like every 50 or 75 linear feet around the exterior of the building there had to be a pop hole for them to get to the outside. And they do have to have access to the outdoors but the yard can be fixed. And chickens, like any other animal, if you leave them in a small confined space long enough, they'll kill every piece of vegetation there is and it turns into a mud lot. So I'm always quick to point out that when we're talking about pasture poultry, which is what we raise, this is a chicken that uh, sure it spends the first two and a half to three weeks of its life in a brooder until it gets big enough to go outdoors, but then in the case of our farm for the next five to five and a half, six weeks, it's outside. It gets moved every day to a, a fresh paddock of grass. Uh, they are somewhat grass fed, although we're, we're still talking about a meat chicken, so I explained to them that, you know, it's not 100% grass fed. There's really no such thing as 100% grass fed chicken in a production model like ours. Um, but that by moving them every day, we get lots of forage into their diet. Now, the reason that Geraldine asked for this clarification, and she's not the first person that's that's brought this up, is because of companies like ButcherBox, which you get on their website. Looks really nice. And I don't have any personal experience with Butcher Box. I've never bought anything from them. Um, they, you know, define their chickens as, you know, getting access to the outdoors. Uh, their standards include roosting in barns and specialized enhancements. I, I don't know what that means. Plentiful outdoor access. Again, it doesn't say free range. It doesn't say pasture. The photograph on the website... Makes you think it's pastured poultry. Uh, nutritious, all vegetarian diet, forage and feed. Um, again, I don't know exactly where ButcherBox sources everything from. I think uh, what Geraline is driving at here is that, you know, there's a, some misinformation out there amongst consumers that what they get from ButcherBox um, is just as good as what a producer like she or like I raise and direct sell to them at the farmers market. Um, I have two thoughts on this. My first thought is that without knowing a whole lot about ButcherBox, I doubt they're sourcing from producers like myself. It's it's it is probably a quasi free range slash pasture poultry. It probably depends on the producer. I, I know in the South they're actually turning old confinement poultry houses into something that's a whole lot better. They actually will let the birds go in there at night and and lock them in, but then in the morning they they open things up and they let them out into the yards and they, they rotate them. They'll rotate through these old houses. They won't just use them continually so that the grass has a chance to replenish itself and it, you know, it's 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 kind of a neat system in a way because they're reusing a piece of infrastructure uh, that's defunct uh, where the farmer couldn't make any money, and now he's got a way to, to use that infrastructure and do something that's a whole lot better than what he was doing. It's a huge leap in the right direction, um, and he can make a living. That's my guess. Again, I don't know that. The other thought I have is that I really don't care. Um, what ButcherBox does or what they say they do because from my standpoint, I don't bump up against them with consumers, at least not yet. Will I in the future at some point? Maybe, yes. I, I know a friend of mine, Luke Gross in Southern Indiana, he has started bumping into them. He's got some issues with how they market with what they say they do versus what they're actually doing versus what he's doing. I haven't started to bump into them personally I think consumers who shop with me at the farmer's market like that's a different consumer most of the time than someone who's going to order from a company like ButcherBox um so I guess in a way I don't care because I I don't think at least currently that it affects me but I wanted to go through and explain just for anybody who doesn't produce their own food what the difference is uh, because it, it really does matter um and at the end of the day, you just can't beat looking at the face of the farmer, looking them, you know, eye to eye, asking them questions, getting that gut check to make sure that your food was produced to the standards that you want. And that's really what it's all about for me at the end of the day. Uh, I can't control what anybody else does or what some company does, I can only control what I do and affect people that buy from me directly at the farmer's market. That's that's the consumer I care about. So, Garlene, I hope that kind of helps clarify things a little bit. Um, Thanks for sending that one in. For anybody else that has a question for me, shoot them on over. Darby at grassfedlife.co. I'll be happy to answer it for you. Um, And for anybody else who wants to learn... More about me and what I do with my business partner, Diego Footer, check out grassfedlife.co. There are tons of free resources out there, including well over 100 podcasts, blog articles. There are some guides out there, a lot of different free resources you can use. There's also some paid-for content, but there's a lot of free stuff to help you learn how to produce poultry, like I just described, pork and beef profitably on pasture that's what we're all about so feel free to check out those resources as always thanks for sending this one in everyone have a wonderful weekend and take care
1: so um i want to do a couple ads there first of all I, i completely agree with darby's contention that the best case scenario in sourcing your food is to go to the person who raised it knowing exactly how they raised it and buy that that I completely agree with. I also want to kind of bring a, a reality to that in a nation with 330 plus million people. Um, and in a world with, you know, what is it? 9 billion people or something like that now. Um, it's, it's not doable for everyone. It's not doable for everyone. And I think that it is good for markets to have as many Uh, different ways of having that market served as possible. The big thing I am for is transparency, so that the person that is making the decision, factoring in money, availability, convenience, quality, etc., is able to actually make an informed decision. And Darby actually, I don't know if he knows or not, he really hit on the way that poultry is raised, and being raised more and more, this is the case, um, to qualify as pasture poultry, et cetera, and to to not be skating that line using that well free range or something where you know the animal has this little yard that's not you know they have a house with like twenty thousand chickens in it and this outdoor space they wouldn't even all fit in it. Uh, it is a lot of this is being done with repurposing of old infrastructure and what ButcherBox says they do, and I have no reason to doubt them is that they're sourcing for people who these chickens are out during the day and they roost in the chicken house. Now, I think there's a limit to what you can do with that. Anybody that's raising commercial chickens today is raising Cornish Cross, Heritage Whites, which might be a little bit better rangers uh, than, than, than the Cornish Cross, etc. But in general, that's what you're raising. These birds don't really want to go very far and they don't want to do a lot of work. Um, but they are they will they will take advantage of it and they they will do less and less of that the older that they get. But if I weren't comfortable with the product that ButcherBox is marketing as pastured is legitimately being able to call it pastured, I, I would not recommend them and I would not take them as a sponsor. Would I say that they're poultry as is high quality as something that Darby raises? I think that's subjective. If I had a guy down the road doing what Darby does here, I would probably choose to get my poultry from him and make different selections from ButcherBox. The reality is the reason the companies like ButcherBox and they're not the only ones doing it, but the reality is the reason these companies are able to do what they're doing is because the market is not fully served. And I don't know that the market can be fully served. I don't know that there's enough people that want to do the type of work that Darby is doing out there that also are good enough to be able to function as they do without something like a distribution channel that ButcherBox provides to be able to distribute through. We've talked about this before with you know specialty versus dual purpose uh, in, in animals, and I think Darby would agree that um, a a chicken that is a dual purpose chicken is probably not great at either thing. Humans being you know more adaptable than chickens, you can have a par- farmer who is a good marketer. That's what what Darby is. But a, a lot of times you either have someone that's good at marketing or you have someone that's good at farming. And for all of this to work, we need uh, multiple channels. We also need, if we want this industry that feeds 300 million people to move in our direction, there needs to be a way that they can, that can scale and serve 300 million people. And dragging chicken tractors around will probably not feed 300 million people. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying it won't be done. There are not enough people that want to do it to make it happen. And frankly, if you had enough, you'll drive the prices down to make it where it won't really make sense anymore. Um, and, and And people will begin to go out of business. Having that differentiator and saying this is the premium product and being able to sell the premium price is where people like Darby are able to make a living. So if you had enough if every chicken in every Kroger and Albertsons, etc., was raised that well, that way, it probably wouldn't be profitable to do it anymore. But if we want the mass market to stop abusing animals and let them have some quality of life and, and stop injecting you know, massive amounts of antibiotics and crap like that into them, then we need, we need to be able to do better. And I, I think that's what we have in a company like ButcherBox and other competitors out there. And I think that competition is the greatest thing in the world. The open markets and competition are great. What I hate is shit like, oh, this is free range, and that means that it got out an area about the size of a fish tank. Uh, once or twice in its miserable six weeks of life. That I despise, uh, and, and I think we should despise that. And it's, it's a problem when people can just use a word without it having been defined. But, again, I leave it to Marcus to do that, not government. With that, let's take another one. This one on saving for your kid's future, and uh, this will involve a little precious metal, a little bit of money, but also a business, in this case it's centered on cattle.
3: Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question comes from Ashley. Now, she asked her question in multiple parts, and I like the way she's framed it, because by answering her question, I think it'll address some other things that other people have asked about, even though she's specifically talking about saving for her baby's education. So even if you're not interested in saving for a child's education, listen up anyways, because some of Ashley's questions may apply to you. And here's how she starts out. She says, how can we best save and invest for our baby's future? Now, she doesn't say how old her son is, but let's assume he's a newborn and that child has some 18 years before he's going to touch this money. And here's the background she gives us. We don't want to save in an education savings plan. What will school like when he's ready to go or will he even want to go to school? Actually, I 100% agree with what you just said. I personally don't like the way that the 529 education plans are put together. The ones that I've come across are extremely restrictive in the types of investments you can invest in, and they're even more restrictive in the time frame that they let you change your investments. Most of the ones I have seen allow you to make one investment decision a year. For that very reason alone, I stopped contributing to my kids' 529 education plans, oh, probably, I don't know, 15 years ago. I also don't like the fact that the money is restricted as to what types of educations it can be used for. And if your son isn't going to use that money for an approved education plan, then they're denied the tax benefits from it. And so, in my opinion, you'd be much better off just investing that money in a traditional brokerage account. That way you never lose control of the money, not only in ways you can spend it, but also in ways you can invest it. Then Ashley goes on to say, so far this is our plan. Put 50% in silver and gold. Ashley, I'm going to disagree with you 100% on that part of your question. You hear Jack all the time talking about his net worth and that he puts 5 to 10% into precious metals as part of his long-term savings surety plan. The reason he limits that to 5 to 10% is that silver and gold, although they're precious, they are still commodities. And commodity prices are not only cyclical, but they can be extremely volatile. And so if you wanted to align this more with Jack's saving plan, then you wouldn't want to exceed 10% in silver and gold. Personally, my recommendation would be if you're saving specifically for your young son's future, and he's going to use this money in the next 18 years or so to get an education or to advance his career, then for that purpose, I wouldn't put any money into silver or gold. Because I believe that the money that you would allocate to a precious metal investment is money that you really never intend to spend. You have it available to use for a dire emergency, but the real intent is that you never spend it and it's used as part of a multi-generational savings plan to build and preserve future generational wealth in perpetuity. The money that you're talking about, you're doing that with the full intent of him using it in 18 or 20 or 22 years. So in this case, I would avoid precious metals altogether. Now, I really like this part of Ashley's question, and she's specifically asking about livestock. But to make this a more general answer so it applies to everyone, I'm going to think of this in terms of a family-run small business. In Ashley's particular case, it's livestock. In your individual family, it may be something else. So don't think of my answer in terms of livestock only. I'm talking broadly and generally about any type of family-run business or enterprise that you can run and create a profit. So here's what Ashley says. They can get a 25% annual return by money that's invested in livestock. Now, I don't know if they do this full-time or if it's a side hustle that their family's engaged in, but in any case, since that's your area of expertise, I think it makes a great deal of sense that you start with this livestock opportunity. Buy that first cow. You said you get a 25% annually. That means in four years you could buy two cows. And so by the time your son would be 18, he's going to have a whole herd of cattle. You know, 35 or more probably. I think that is by far your best investment opportunity. And I think it's even a better opportunity assuming that you're going to raise your son in this business. So as a small child, he's going to start throwing hay to the cattle. And then he'll learn to clean up around them and fix fences and then incrementally every year learning more and more about raising cattle. And so at the same time that he's building his wealth, he's also building his knowledge about agribusiness, but he's learning about business in general, and he's learning how to be a man. And so that way, when he's 18 years old, he'll not only have knowledge and experience, but he potentially would also have a whole herd of cattle. Now, there's obviously a lot of caveats to what I'm saying here, I'm assuming that you have the land to grow and expand this business and also the time and the opportunity to raise this cattle. That may or may not be the case, but I think you get the general idea of where I'm going with this. You're starting with a small amount of money and a very young child. I would stick to your knitting, stick to the things that you know, and so for at least the next few years, if not for the next 18 years, that's where I would be putting my time and effort. Because that way, you're not only building wealth, but you're raising your son into a man. And if you do that, I think you'll find that that small family business will pay dividends over the future, probably far and above what you're going to get out of a standard 529 education savings program. Well, Ashley, thanks for your question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth.
1: I-, I totally agree with John here. And I-, I want to add just a little bit as well, though, with the concept of saving for my kids' education. Uh, And the way these people want to do this, it's irrelevant, because they'll be able to do whatever they want to with that money. We're not talking about a 529 plan or something like that. But I I think that when you make a commitment to save for your child's future, what you should say is is that. You, You shouldn't even use in your mind the word Education. Um, or really any words that are dis- definitive of, of, of what that money's for. And I, I think that it's difficult as a parent, especially of a parent of a baby, and, and you're going to be changing diapers for two, three years. Uh, that child will be completely dependent on you during those years. You're going to spend, you know, another 16 years working yourself out of a job. Um, and, and that child is going to need you for guidance in all walks over those years. And slowly you're decoupling. And at that point in the journey, it's very hard to even conceive of totally letting go and understanding this young human being now is going to have its own life and make its own decisions. And I see a problem where parents have a preconceived idea of what their child should do when that child becomes an adult, and, and I'm not talking about making sure there's certain safeguards. I think if you hand, you know, a 18 year old kid $100,000 with no conditions and no guidance, it's a mistake, and it will it will 99 times out of 100 end a disaster. So I'm not talking about a 100% hands off approach. What I'm talking about is a hands off approach to the level of I have no preconceived ideas or intents whatsoever with what this child is going to do with his future or her future when they become an adult. And the money that I am saving, eventually, it may not be when they're 18. I will have to make determinations based on what they say they want to do with it, how mature they are, how reasonable that is. But at some point, no matter how ridiculous it is, maybe it's when they're 25, whatever, I am going to go, this way. Was saved for you, invested in your life as you see fit, and I'm going to step back and be marveled at what that young person will do with their life. And again, I'm okay with hey, you know, if your kid's on dope, right? You know, if your kid's shooting up heroin every day, don't give them their inheritance early, right? I, I I get that. That is that is not what I am saying. I am saying that when you say, well, it's supposed to be for education and your kid you know, worked their way through welding school and wants to buy a bunch of machinery to open their own shop, and you're like, no, you really need to go to college, or even having any kind of conception of what they should do. So I think that you have to look at it more like, this is the best way to explain it. I finally have a good way to explain it in my head now. It's a banker. You have to look at it as a banker. So... If what they want to do with the money is truly foolish and not well thought out, not backed by a solid business plan or whatever it needs to have, and and, and legitimately is poorly spent money, it is going to result in misery or bankruptcy or ending up with nothing. And you know that the way a banker would, saying, no, we are not ready yet, that's fine. But your banker, if your kid went to a banker and said, this is my business plan to open up a business, would not say, well, you know, I I really thought that you would make a much better fill in the blank or that you have so much potential in your life. Why do you only want to? They would evaluate the situation and say, yeah, this is good cash flow potential and this person is solid. They've got their shit together. I'll make this loan. And you may be more lenient than a banker, but what I'm saying is that's kind of the approach that you have to take. And you, it is good to begin that thought process now. And, you know, raising this kid to learn how to handle cattle and all, they may grow up and love that. And they may grow up and think, I, you know, once I get out of here, I never want to see a cow again for the rest of my life. And we need to dream for our kids, and and wish them the best, but we don't need to try to control their dreams. Uh, I guess is kind of where I'm coming from. And starting from that moored reality, I think, will help prevent a lot of problems down the road as you realize, finally, like, oh, my job's going away. Because that's the, the end result of being a parent is being permanently laid off. You'll always be their mom or dad. You'll always be there for them. But the job you had, you do less and less of it to the point where you hand it off, and they then provide their own, their own rules for their own life. Let's take another one. This one uh, for Doc Bones.
4: Hi, Joe Houghton, M.D., here, also known as Doctor Bones of DoomandBloom.net. Where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Health is Not on the Way, and our brand new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. This week's question is from James from California who writes, With the availability of Tegaderm, transparent dressings and generic window bandages in local drugstores, and on Amazon, can you discuss the advantages and disadvantages of using these products, both during normal times and also during disasters? I have used them treating some deep road rash, and they seem a good way to treat some injuries while reducing the bulk of medical supplies. Thank you, James, behind enemy lines in California, but leading the resistance. James, certainly resistance fighters can get injured, and it's important to have a good way to prevent infection in wounds. Numerous studies demonstrate the importance of enhancing wound healing if you're looking for dressing materials with properties that are similar to healthy, intact skin. Semi-permeable but waterproof transparent film dressings like Tegaderm Prevent the passage of liquids, bacteria, and even viruses, believe it or not, to the IV site or wound while allowing moisture, vapor, and gas exchange through the dressing. Now, that's actually very important. Add to that the ability to see the wound through this transparent dressing and the versatility to conform to any body part makes Tegaderm a popular secure to IV lines in hospitals as well as for healing wounds. Tegaderm transparent dressings can be used to cover and protect catheter sites can be used to maintain a moist environment for wound healing. They could be a secondary dressing. They can be a protective cover over skin that's at risk. It's also good to secure devices to the skin and can even serve as a protective eye covering. Applications for wound management include clean, closed surgical incision, bed sores, which are not clean and were not closed, superficial wounds such as abrasions, skin tears and blisters and first and second degree burns they work pretty well they're also a great covering for gauze dressings as well the product comes in tegaderm and tegaderm hp dressings either are appropriate for the issues that i just mentioned hp film has a different adhesive provides a greater holding power in moist conditions such as draining wounds as long as they're not draining too much Specially designed tegaderm dressings come in a variety of shapes and sizes, so it's not a bad idea to have a number of different types to match the wounds that might crop up in survival scenarios. These dressings are easy to apply, even on yourself, so that's good. They're hypoallergenic and latex-free, very important in these days of latex allergies, almost epidemics of them. But they're solidly secure. That's very important. They're very adherent, and they can be worn for long periods of time if they have to be but they don't traumatize the skin if you remove them properly now most importantly they provide a sterile barrier to all sorts of microbes while allowing moisture vapor to come out and gases to come out and that's an essential part to maintaining skin integrity during healing this means fewer dressing changes per day for example for significant open wounds and a lot of increased patient comfort as a result on top of that they're pretty affordable Few negatives, just don't stretch the Tegaderm too much when you apply it to the skin. Certainly traumatized skin would not like that, but otherwise, really not bad. The bottom line is you can do a lot worse than having Tegaderm as part of your disaster medical storage. This is Joel M.D. that Old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our survival medicine handbook and our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, and make an old man, me, by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy channel, and Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page. Thanks again.
1: And if you're interested in in this particular product for your needs, I have a link in the show notes today uh, to products built with this material on Amazon where you can check it out. Uh, Next up, I have uh, a question from Michael Jordan on making a a, a spring mead that feels like spring when you drink it and helps you celebrate
0: spring's arrival. I'm Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Today we are talking about meads. Time to brew a spring mead. Berries and the end of the year harvest has happened. Many you have stored up your herbs and spices, vacuum packed them and sealed them so you could use them for this time and this moment. So let's get going on a spring mead for Mr. Sample out of Columbus, Ohio. Here is a spring mead that you'll be ready to drink by April or May. And this recipe was inspired to make you feel good in the spring. And to feel all the tastes of spring. We're going to make a three gallon batch. So we're definitely going to need three gallons of nice spring water. Try to get nothing from the tap. Unless you have a well or a good water supply source. I want four ounces of wild violet six and a quarter ounces of dandelion petals, one ounce of white clover, two ounces of dried roses, one lemon with the rind, 36 golden raisins, seven ounces of mulberries. For the honey, I want two pounds of alfalfa honey, two pounds of basswood honey, one pound of thar star thistle honey, And one pound of orange blossom honey. We're also going to be using one pound of honey in honeycomb. Any variety we'll use. Personally, I like one pound of orange blossom honey for this recipe. We're going to be using Red Stars Cote de Blancs yeast. Now, all the herbs that I mentioned you can get from Mountain Rose Herbs. If you did not vacuum seal or keep any for your storage... These are just basic herbs that you can use and everything can be dried. Even the mulberries can be oh, dehydrated or even frozen if you have them. Especially fresh is best. So now we're going to go ahead and get started on on your mix. We're going to go ahead and make a great must. So how we're going to start is bringing one gallon of water to boil. Using the spring water of course. Now, once you get it boiling, I want you to remove the burner from the pot, and I want you to add the two pounds of alfalfa, the two pounds of basswood, the one pound of thistle, and the one pound of orange blossom honey to this one gallon of water. I want you to dissolve all the honey all the way down. Now, on a separate burner, I want you to bring one gallon of water to boil, and I want you to add the dandelion petals, the violets, the dried roses, the clover, and I want you to boil this for about oh five to ten minutes, and then I want you to turn down the heat and let it cool to room temperature. At this time, I want you to add the lemon juice with the rind and everything with it. I want you to rash, I want you to add the crushed mulberries, the raisins, and the remaining orange blossom honey in the comb, or whatever comb that you have. Just go ahead and mash this all in there, and then just dump this into your fermentation jug. Now, the other batch that had your honey that was all dissolved in the boiling water, I want you to add this to and make sure that you have two gallons of liquid in your fermentation device. One's with the honey and the other is the tea that you made, blending them both together. To really make this blend really good, give this a good jostle and shake and then fill your jug up so you have three gallons of brew. Now, let this sit. By letting this sit, we want to have it get to acclimation of room temperature to the yeast to work the best. At this time, this is when we add our yeast. Man, this is going to have so much stuff come out of it because of the different honeys that we put in there. Not to mention uh, using the lemon to go with the mulberries. Man, it's going to bring out some great flavors. Uh, I want you to do what they call a nose palate. When you drink this, I want you to drink it Swirl it around again, then drink it, and then breathe out through your nose. Uh, This will bring out your nose palate and let you taste all the stuff that's going on in this. This is a miraculous drink. Not only is it going to give you a little bit of immune system, build up your vitamin C, it's going to give you a great impact. The florals and stuff that come out of this mead are incredible. And like I said, it's going to make you think of summer. You could chill this or serve it over ice if you wish. Some people even add a little uh, Sprite spritzer to it to make it a little bubbly if you want to, but remember, we want this one to come fully dry out, so if we make it now, we're looking about April or May when it's done, so we're looking at about a 90 to 100 day turnaround, and that's to keep all of this dry, and to eat all the sugars from all the amounts of honey that we put in, we did put in 6 pounds of honey, so basically it was 2 pounds per gallon, but we want to make sure that this is all eaten, and we want to get this really dry, um, I hope you really like this, this is a great spring mix for you, I am Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer, telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper respect. Get it from a small company for a better product and to help people start out. And remember, as I always say, help your fellow man because one day you're going to need help too. Okay. I have one warning here.
1: And some of you know what you're like. He's going to say it. I know he's going to say it. And you're right. Do not get parsley disease with a recipe this complex. And what I mean by that is if you can acquire all this stuff in this winter, make this mead exactly the way that MJ described it, God bless you, go forth and make it. I bet it will be fantastic. Uh, And and probably lay some up for next spring as well. And maybe make it an, uh, an annual winter thing to make a batch of this. And then every year... Try some, and then once you get a year into it, try some and the year prior, and maybe even go a three-year cycle there. Because um, I think this would be a mead that would, would, would be really wonderful and bright uh, out of the gate, but I think a year or two of age on it would even bring more complexity to the party, though some of the brightness will fade. Um, but don't get parsley disease. And what is parsley disease for the uninitiated? Parsley disease is when I give you a recipe for chicken soup. And I say, you know, use uh, two handfuls of fresh parsley as part of this litany of ingredients. And, and you can't find parsley, so you don't make the soup. Um, let's say that you can't acquire, can't find a particular honey that, that, that Michael recommended here. Substitute something. Use one more pound of the other honey, uh, etc. If there's a particular thing you can't get a hold of, use whatever you can and get as close as you can and, and make it your own. Um, Don't be afraid to deviate from anybody's recipe because that's really how it becomes your recipe. And in life in general, not just in cooking and mead making, don't ever have parsley disease. Do what you can with what you have and you'll probably end up with more than than you thought you ever would. Just my thoughts on that. Next up, we have a a question and an answer on the Bitcoin cash fork and kind of the misery that's come from it and where it's headed and uh, a general cryptocurrency market update from uh, Ben
5: Fitz of Crypto Gulch. Hi, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch. And on today's expert council, we have a question or several questions that came in about cryptocurrency specifically regarding the Bitcoin cash forks. For those of you that aren't aware, uh, Bitcoin Cash is an offshoot of Bitcoin. Some people say that Bitcoin Cash is the true vision of Bitcoin. And um, there was a recent fork in the middle of November about Bitcoin Cash. And we didn't talk about it on the show because the fork was quite contentious. There were two different camps vying for power Bitcoin Cash ABC and Bitcoin Cash SV. And ABC had um, some changes that they wanted to make to Bitcoin Cash to allow people to be able to create smart contracts for Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin Cash SV, basically, they said, we're the original vision, we're Satoshi's vision. And they had a, a reported email from Satoshi that they were using as part of their claims, and it was quite a contentious fork. I mean, these two groups, the group backing Bitcoin Cash ABC and Bitcoin Cash SV... Um, each of them controlled large mining operations and mining pools, and they were throwing hash rate back and forth trying to become the true Bitcoin Cash. Well, it appears that the community has agreed that Bitcoin Cash ABC is now Bitcoin Cash, and Bitcoin Cash SV, Satoshi's vision, is um, now going to be a separate ticker symbol. So most of the online trading platforms are recognized, Bitcoin Cash ABC is now just Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin SV or BSV is going to be the Satoshi's vision, uh, Bitcoin Cash. So really interesting. These guys are putting millions of dollars into mining these coins and trying to make their vision be uh, the number one. And some of them have said that they've burned as much as $12 million mining um, Roger Ver and Bitcoin.com, they actually switched from BTC mining to all uh Bitcoin Cash SV mining for a while to try and do this and... Um, it was really interesting. Um, it's causing a lot of issues, you know, right now in cryptocurrency or just in the markets in general in the U.S. You know, the financial markets are down in general. There's a lot of insecurity about the economy. When that's happening, what you have is Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are also taking a hit. You know, we were already in a down market with cryptocurrency. Now we're really in a down market because there's additional insecurities about the economy economy in the in the country. Then in addition to that, you have one of the most major cryptocurrencies out there where people are fighting back and forth and some of them are literally having to sell bitcoin to, that they own in order to pay for, you know, these operations. Craig Wright, the guy who supposedly claimed to be Satoshi and he was part of the Satoshi Vision, he said that he would sell off a large amount of his Bitcoin to fund the mining operations for Bitcoin SV, or Bitcoin Cash SV. It's really interesting, the stuff is, that's going on, I guess it's going to be called Bitcoin SV since since really it's going to be different than, than Bitcoin Cash. Basically, the one community behind Bitcoin Cash ABC, which is now Bitcoin Cash, their thought was that smart contracts make the platform better. And the Satoshi vision camp basically said, no, that's not what Bitcoin is about. It's not about smart contracts. It's about being a fast payment platform. Uh, and they really want micropayments and things like that to be able to happen on Bitcoin. There, that's why they're saying that's what Satoshi's vision was. You know, the, his, his vision doesn't talk about smart contracts and being token exchange offerings and things like that. His vision is for, uh, cheap digital payment platform. And so that's one of the things that's been happening in cryptocurrency. Uh, the markets are way down, as you know. There was some news from Ethereum Classic this week as they recently disbanded the Ethereum Classic Development Group as a result of saying that they don't really have funds to continue development. They don't have funds to pay the developers because they pay the developers in tokens or ethereum classic but the the value of the ethereum classic tokens are now one third of what they were even a month or two ago so they're having a hard time paying for developers so they're going to go ahead and shut down the ethereum classic development group that doesn't mean ethereum classic is going to go away it just means that it's more likely that ethereum classic is going to have problems as a result of losing some of the developers now, people can continue to develop for Ethereum Classic. It may mean that they're developing on a volunteer basis rather than actually receiving funding from an organization. Something to be aware about if you are heavily invested in Ethereum Classic or if you've been mining Ethereum Classic, you want to be aware that this uh, change for Ethereum Classic has happened. Um, some other news, Ethereum, they are basically pointing out that Ethereum is kind of largely controlled by one organization um, that has developed a platform that a lot of the smart contracts are written on. There's some concern that that's creating centralization in the Ethereum network. There's kind of like a little bit of bad news for both Ethereum Classic and Ethereum this week. But having said that, if you've been around before, you have seen this happen. If you're new and you've got involved in crypto in the last year or year and a half, you know maybe you got involved in crypto last year when the price started skyrocketing this time of year. Um, you've never seen this kind of market crash or pullback in crypto, but we've seen it before multiple times. The last big one was in 2014 and 15, and 2013 was kind of the first time that Ethereum went up to the $1,000 level. And then it crashed and pulled back eighty percent. And that's when the Mount Gox hack happened. MT G O X, Mt. Gox was the largest cryptocurrency exchange at the time, and that was one of the major factors in scaring a lot of people out of out of Bitcoin and crypto. So we've seen it before. If you're looking at investors that were investing back then, many of them sold off along the way. So they've made back their investment and they might be looking at some traditional investments to put their funds into temporarily and then um maybe buy back later that's that's one of the things that I've heard talked about from financial people I talked to a guy who invests money for he invests crypto for these whales and you know they're still trading they're still involved They're, they're doing day trading and I'm not a day trader. I don't suggest you be a day trader as it's a good way to lose a lot of money unless you're good at it. And that's why they pay this guy to do it, right? Is because he's good at it. Um, for me, I'm, I make a lot of bad decisions when trading. So it's, it's kind of tough. I thought Bitcoin was a good buy at 10,000, you know, much less. 3700 or 3800, wherever it's at today. So it takes a little faith right now in crypto, whether or not it's going to bounce back. If, if you look at the charts and look at 2014, 2015, you're going to see that, you know, we went through something like 15 months of down market. You know, this time it could be longer. It may be longer than 15 months, but the question is, do you have, do you believe that cryptocurrency is going to make a comeback or not? And I'm a believer in cryptocurrency. Obviously, I'm I'm involved in cryptocurrency mining. If you're a miner, you might want to think about turning off your equipment temporarily. If you can't afford to mine at a loss, because right now, your electricity is probably costing you more than you're making mining, you might want to turn it off temporarily and wait and see. If you're an investor, there's some opportunities out there for used equipment, things like that. If you think it's going to come back, there's people right now that, Rather than just turn off their equipment and save it for later, they want to sell and try and get whatever money they can out of it. So there are some opportunities if you're looking to, you know, maybe take a gamble. Now I'm not a financial advisor. I can't tell you what to do. I just can tell you that there are some discounts out there for used equipment for people that might be interested in that. It's also totally a, you know, reasonable idea to turn off your equipment and wait and see if the market makes a comeback. And and some of you, maybe you don't care. Maybe you're looking at long term and you can afford to mine at a loss for a while. And that is also valid. So there's several different strategies for different people. And it's also a valid strategy to sell your equipment right now and, and get as much money out of it as you can. You know, um, you bear the risk of if you hold on to it longer, maybe it's worth less. And maybe now is an opportunity where you can sell at a decent value. So a lot of exciting things going on in the cryptocurrency markets. I hope that you enjoy these kinds of general updates, and I hope it's been of value to you. Thank you, Jack, and thank you, Survival Podcast listeners.
1: I I think one of the most important things that Ben says is in this is if uh, you know if you jumped into cryptocurrency when it was raging um, about fourteen fifteen months ago, this is all new to you and it's a catastrophe and ah. Uh, uh if you've been uh involved with cryptocurrency for four or five or more years it's like we did this before we'll do this again this is a this is the wild wild west of, of making a new currency a new way that people pay for things a new uh decentralized system that writes the banks out of the equation um i I think that it's cryptocurrency is a good gamble investment. It is the money that you are not worried about losing that you put into cryptocurrency and nothing else, and that's all that it's ever been. Um, But the purpose of cryptocurrency isn't so that we can buy Lamborghinis. The purpose of cryptocurrency is to develop a new way in which people can interact and conduct business and write banks in the state out of the equation. That's the purpose here, and it's important to understand that and to see the long-term view of things with cryptocurrency. Uh, Next up, I have a question for Gary Collins on finding your purpose. Gary, take it away.
6: Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of thesimplelifenow.com, where I discuss all things life simplification, living off the grid, and all kinds of things that just make your life darn easier. Make sure to sign up for my newsletter, guys, and buy my best-selling book, Going Off the Grid. Go to my website and on Amazon, everywhere. Now, I want to talk today, because I'm in the process of finishing up the third book in my The Simple Life series which is separate from my going off the grid book and other books are getting ready to follow that coming very soon within like four weeks, I think. So be on the lookout for those. But I want to talk about people always ask me, what is what would I say is the first step in moving towards a simpler life, the things that I teach? I talk a lot about health in the beginning, but even before that is finding your purpose, Now, there's a lot of confusion on that, but the reason I say that that's the place to start is today, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but most Americans today seem to be a little lost. I was one of them, trying to figure out why am I here, what am I going to do, you know, what is my purpose, and that's the thing we all struggle with. And as some of you who follow my blog and my newsletter found, you know, I talk about Uh, purpose and how my purpose found me which now is teaching people the lifestyle that I live and uh, not knowing that people would really be interested in it but they are which surprisingly so it kind of found me but I was living trying to find my purpose live my purpose which was living remotely simpler less noise being an entrepreneur controlling my own destiny so you know, purpose is a wide, it can change. So your purpose at a young age could be different from middle age, late age. It could be anything from being the best mother, father you can be, um, you know, being, you know, like Elon Musk, whose purpose is to create these incredible inventions that cha- are changing our lives. You know, that's the extreme example. Not all this can be Elon Musk, obviously, but also I give, uh, another example, perfect example to simplify it down. Yeah. You know me. So keep it simple is say, say you have a real passion for chocolate. You like, you like making chocolate. You like eating chocolate. Oh, not too much. I hope, you know, gotta be everything, everything in moderation. I like chocolate. I don't eat it all the time though, but you have, you know, you're really fascinated by, You know, the intricacies of making chocolate and making people enjoy it. So maybe your purpose is to become a baker or chocolate maker and make the best artisan chocolate that you can, you know, you can make, you know, specialty high, high end, you know, this phenomenal chocolate that everyone comes around miles to come get from you 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 see the two extremes going from Elon Musk the chocolate maker you know it it just depends and if that that could be your purpose it and people would go well gosh Gary making chocolate that sounds really think of all the joy and happiness you can give to people who drive that far in your neighborhood come there for the you know to to feel the, you know, the crowd and everyone who's there and the groups and everyone enjoying chocolate. I mean, life can be really that simple. So I hope that helps and explains. And I'll be talking about that more in my next, the simple life book called the guide to decluttering your life. Again, guys, www.thesimplelifenow.com. Thanks.
1: So I I wanted to say a little bit about this before I answered my question this week, which is a pretty simple one. I I think that we can put too much into this on some levels and be not patient enough on on some levels. Uh, Specifically, I think that, and I know that, Sometimes I seem like I'm really coming down on the millennial generation, the younger generation. And, you know, honestly, the millennials are becoming the Gen Xers of 10 years ago at this point, beginning to come out of their issues, especially the uh, the, the, the older uh, millennials. And we're actually looking at a point now where it won't be long that the, you know, the, 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 the teens that are doing the latest dumb thing, like eating a Tide Pod, won't be millennials. They'll, they'll be Generation Y or Z or whatever they end up calling them. Uh, net natives or or what have you. Um, But I do think that people in their 20s and early 30s right now a lot of them, not all of them have a a tendency to want to have some big purpose in their life and that's good except that they want it like immediately and in all things. Like If they have a job and that job is kind of a mundane job but it pays the bills and it's a stepping stone in the right direction, I don't think they really appreciate it for what it is. In 1993, I got out of the Army, I came home, I had some trouble readjusting, I took a long walk, I moved to Texas, and the first job I took when I came here was packing back boxes in a warehouse. Uh, there's not a lot of purpose in that. I, there, you know, There is some purpose, and I guess you can say at the end of the day all of these boxes went to the people that ordered their shit because I packed them. Uh, and in the company I worked for, the people that were getting those boxes were business people. It was a um, a, a wholesale distributorship. So each one of those. So when you, you take a long view of it, you can say, well, yeah, all those people's businesses were enabled by my actions, and somebody had to do it. Um, but certainly at the time, I didn't feel like I had a big purpose in what I was doing. And as we would get into this time of the year with short days, I would go to work and it was dark. I would come home and it was dark. Um, and you know, I was making six bucks an hour. I probably would have had a lot less of a problem with a lack of purpose if I was making $20 an hour versus six at the time, right? So there's, there is that tendency in all of us, but I also knew that there was a purpose to what I was doing pay the bills while I figure out what I'm going to do next. And I think sometimes in finding your purpose, what you have to do is, 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 is have some level of contentment with where you are so that you can find where that you need to end up going. And I do think that we have a generation today that lacks patience in that particular pursuit. They want everything to have meaning. And I think it's not, again, it's another example of it not being your fault. This generation was raised, you know, constantly being told they were special uh you know when your kids they didn't put scores on the 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 game clock for you when you were you know too young to deal with losing and and all of that shit and I think that that can kind of lead up to a point with you know you were promised if you if you were good if you did the right thing if you went to college if you got good grades that you would have this wonderful amazing life and now well where the hell is it and the answer is it's up to you to build it I know that they kind of did a bait-and-switch on you there, and, and, and your parents and, and your teachers, they were well-meaning, but they really didn't know what the F they were talking about. There is no this, – this constant belief that you know each generation will be better just because it's the next generation is nonsense. Our generation ceased to get better, not just because of underlying problems in our economy, because those can always be overcome with creativity. They cease to get better when we stop calling on that next generation to make their generation better and give to them instead an expectation that, that it will be better. Just just do it, and it will be better, rather than this is how far we've come. Now you must pick up the baton and take the next leg of the race, and it's up to you to make it better. And it, this is summed up in some wisdom that I that I picked up recently on Facebook of all places. And it, you know I have Jack's 30 Laws of Life. I'm working on the book. I think I'm up to chapter 9. And my hope is that it will be enough of a hit that I'll write 30 more laws of life. I already have kind of the second book in my mind. And I'm already finding these things. And my laws of life have always been this. I didn't write. This isn't mine in the thing that I created it. It's, it's that it's how I've lived, and at some point, I either formulated it into a simple phrase, or I heard a simple phrase and said, that's it, that's the thing, that's what I, or at some point, I heard it and said, I like that, and I'm gonna make that part of my philosophy. So there are the laws I've chosen for my life rather than the laws I've written for my life. And, and this one, I think, has a lot to do with this finding your purpose thing from a parental standpoint. The statement was, if you raise your children, you will be able to spoil your grandchildren. But if you spoil your children, you will have to raise your grandchildren. And I was like, oh my God, so much this. This is so much reality. This is so much truth. And you know, we are a little tough on our grandkids and all, but in the end, we get to spoil them because I raised my son. I didn't spoil my son. So now it's his job, and therefore he's capable of raising his children. And I think that a lot has to do with this question on purpose, and that if you if you take the standpoint of being a grown ass adult and responsible for yourself, then you will find your purpose and what you need to do to fulfill your highest purpose, which is to take responsibility for yourself and if you have kids that of your children. And I think one of the things that may make it, and I know this is going to sound you know maybe a little unfair or something to some of you. But I think one of the things that may be making it difficult for many people to find their purpose in life, people that are in their 30s now, is that you don't have kids and have no plans for any. I I think that actually, really, in your best years, your best working years, can be a hindrance not having kids. And I know you can have more money and you can have more time and what have you, but I'll tell you what having kids in your life does. No matter how shitty your job is, when you know I'm putting food on the table, I'm keeping a roof over their head, and I'm providing for them so they can grow up and become what they want to be, it, it gives you a sense of purpose no matter how shitty what you're doing is. And in being willing to plow through that, you find the thing that you're really destined for. And then some people are lucky right away and they, they know it. And some people know it their whole life. But they have to figure out how to do it. That's me. I knew at 18 I wanted to be a teacher. I knew that I wanted to teach. I knew that I was gifted as a teacher. When I went in the Army, it was like, oh, I have a way to use this. Because they would teach me something and say, now go teach it to to, to your troops. Oh, this is great. And then they had to listen and they had to learn. And so there was some joy in that. It wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but it started me down that path. And as I got into sales, I realized that so much of sales was educating my customer. And doing public speaking, so much was educating my customer. But I didn't really love what I was doing. But I had these pieces of what I wanted. And over time, at 38 years of age, I launched the Survival Podcast. And then I said, this is it. But how much patience, how much will, how much determination does it take to go from 18 to 38, not really having what you know you were meant to do and having to figure out, I just need to keep going until I figure out how to do this thing. And the rea- that's, that's the reality in finding your purpose. Patience and persistence and work will lead you to your purpose. All right. So let's do a much lighter close uh, for the day. Um, we just did an ex- uh, a show on uh, value-added products, but the, the the guest runs Red Dragon Herbs, a, a loose tea company. And again, guys, I got you guys a discount on Red Dragon Herbs tea. You might want to check it out. They do my special blend and a lot of other really great teas. Uh, but this prompted Bryce from Ohio to say, Hello, Jack, what's the best method to make loose-leaf tea? Details. I ordered some tea from Red Dragon Herbs, and I'm very excited about it. And this will be my first time making loose leaf tea. I wasn't sure what equipment I would need. If there's any technique, steep time, water temperature, etc., that you recommend, I understand it doesn't have to be a whole segment, but it could be uh, covered as an item of the day. I thank you in advance for your time, and honestly, can't thank you enough for your podcast. Sincerely, Bryce in Ohio. Bryce, well, thank you for your kind words. And the thing is, it actually has been an item of the day, and there's two of them. Uh, but I'm gonna let's start out with. Where I disagree with our guest, our guest recommended to use a tea ball or a similar item to make loose leaf tea. And I have tried many different versions of these. Some of them, it's a little chain, a little ball, and you pop it open and you put some tea in it. You put the lid back on it and then you hang it down in your tea. There's other ones that kind of look like a little pair of tongs, like a turning set of tongs, except there's a ball Instead of tongs and you squeeze them and it opens, you put it down in the tea and you let it go and it closes and it clamps the tea in there and then you you make your cup of tea with that. Um, I have always found that all of those devices don't let me use as much tea as I would like for a cup of tea. I like to use about a tablespoon of tea to a cup. And as a cup, I mean a standard like small cup, cup, you know, eight ounces or less, a, a small coffee cup of tea. And generally, I make quite a bit of tea at a time, you know, enough to make three, four, five cups uh, because I'm going to drink through. So I like to use a French. But let's say that you were in your home and you had some loose-leaf tea that you bought or somebody gave you and you didn't have any special equipment whatsoever to make your tea. Um, I would... Say that most of us probably have a measuring cup, you know, like a Pyrex uh, cup that, that won't break if some really hot water gets in or anything like that. And It's probably bigger than we need for our cup of tea. And we probably have some sort of a, a small metal mesh strainer, like you would strain noodle something, okay? So take your your little Pyrex thing or whatever, just another cup, and just put your tea in it, about a tablespoon of the cup, and add your hot water to it. And let it steep for about three to four minutes. And then take your little metal strainer, take another cup, and pour it through the strainer. There you go. You got tea. Uh, I made the joke on that episode that uh, Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang said that he's decided that tea is leaf soup. And in some ways, it is. So that's, that's one way you could do that. Um, my preferred method is to use a French press. And I have a link to the Fresh press, French press that I recommend in today's show notes. It's a fantastic product. I'm on my second one only because it's made of glass and I managed to drop the first one. Uh, But they redesigned it and made it much better, so I'm happy with my upgrade as I consider it. And I have a link in the show notes. And with my French press, um, I will make usually the full French press full of it. And I will take, it comes with a a tablespoon dipper, and I will use four of those of loose tea into that. And I will fill that with boiling water. A lot of people say with an herbal tea you should be using water like 180, 190 degrees, not full on boiling. Well, I've poured boiling water into a French press. and you pour that much into a cold French press and hit it with a thermal gun, you end up with water at about 180 to 190 degrees anyway. Even though it was 212 just a few moments ago. So I just don't worry. Uh, I put the plunger on the French press and I put the cover on it. And so there's a plunger that goes down and, and separates the tea from the water or whatever. I make coffee with it too and I make emulsions that I'm going to use in cooking. I do lots of things with my French press. But I push it down just enough that I can put the cover on it. The cover is insulated and holds in the heat. That's why I like this particular French press. But also, if you turn it a little bit, then it kind of closes the pour spout. Remember to open it back up before you pour it or it makes a mess. And I let it sit and steep for about four minutes. And the reason I like having a way to cover it is because a lot of the flavors and amazing components in herbs that go into teas and in just regular tea that we think of as well, it's in essential oils that are highly volatile that really quickly kind of go away up into the atmosphere when they're exposed to hot water. So by covering them, a lot of them kind of like distill back down into the tea. So that's why I prefer the French press method, and that is my preferred method because generally I don't make a cup of tea. I make, you know, four cups of tea. And whether it's because I'm going to drink two now and and then dump the other two out into a glass and use it as iced tea later, or because somebody's come over and I'm making tea for three or four people, either way I generally don't make a single cup of tea. So that's why I like that. The other thing I love about the French press is I make multiple cups. If the water stays on the tea for too long, it can begin to become tannic, uh, bitter, etc. When you push the plunger of a French press down, you effectively separate the tea from the water. The water goes one way through it, doesn't go back down. So it can then sit, and I can drink a cup of tea, and then go pour another cup, and it hasn't become bitter or tannic. Okay. Uh, If you want to make one cup, there are a a variety of tea infusers. The best one I have found is by a company called For Life. F-O-R-L-I-F-E is one word, capital L, capital F, right? So For, capital L-I-F-E. I have a link to that in the show notes today as well. It is a very fine mesh. It sits right in the top of a cup of tea. It's about four ounces in volume and size, so it will easily, you know, handle a, a full tablespoon or more of tea and it will let it, the tea sit in the water the way it does in a French press and get completely, um, you know, immersed into that water and have a good extraction without it being balled up and tight. And it has a little rubber cover that will cover the, the lid of most cups. So when you, what you do is you put that infuser into your cup. You put your tea in it, you pour your hot water through the infuser to the level you want it, and you take the cover that comes with it, and while it's not insulated, it is a good cover, lightly insulated, I guess you'd say, not like the, the French press, and set that on top. So once again, now that your your vapors are trying to take those essential oils away, they're hitting that condensing and falling back down. And then since you've only made a cup, now I don't have to worry about it becoming bitter. All I do is just pull that uh, infuser out, and I'm done. Either way, all of the remains get go into a little container that sits on top of my countertop for compost. Uh tea, coffee, etc. If it if it came from the earth, it goes back to the earth as compost, it's that simple. And that's how I I choose to make tea and the reasoning behind it. Again, both of these items are in the uh show notes today. I have the infuser, uh I don't use it that much anymore. Um, because I have the French press. But if I ever just want to make a cup of tea, I do a nighttime tea that helps knock you the hell out with red valerian. It doesn't taste that great. It kind of has a gym sock thing going on. Uh, I'll generally use the four life for that because I'm not going to make a bunch of that. I'm not going to drink it on ice or whatever. That's just a, a, a quick cup of tea to help me nod off and go to bed. All right, with that, we have uh, wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you that you can help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com, you can find all of the items we've reviewed on Amazon, our latest reviews. You see everything categorized alphabetically. And the big thing is, if you'll do your online shopping through tspaz.com, and this is the time of year for shopping, guys, you're probably doing it anyway. You help support us no matter what you buy. Today I have a, a knife for you. It's made by Mora, also known as Moroccanive. Um, this is a great knife. I've brought this knife around before. Uh, it's on sale today. That's why I brought it around again. It usually sells for like 25 bucks. It's on sale for like $18. Um, Mora makes knives that I've had more than one knife maker tell me, I hate Mora. And they don't hate more because they suck. They hate more because they're good. And they'll say, I, I, I can't buy the material to build that knife for $18. And, and I would agree with that. This is a great knife. Um, it is the companion heavy-duty fixed blade knife. This is a good bushcrafting knife. And it's you know a knife that you don't mind beating up a little bit because you only got 18 bucks into it. Um, again, it's, it's on sale for 18, normally sells for 25. I think if they put this knife on sale for 40 bucks when it came out, no one would have been like, oh my god, that's overpriced. I think it's like a $40 knife that sells for 20 bucks. So it's a good deal anytime, but when it's on sale for, you know, like, what, eight, nine bucks off normal price, it's a really good deal. So it makes a good present. Uh, it, it will get to you before Christmas, according to Amazon, as of today anyway. Uh, it's available, and it's a good knife, and it also makes a good addition to your kit. Mora also has a lot of things on sale right now. I linked in my review to all of the Mora knives, like the whole category on Amazon. But I'll also tell you this. If you have your eye on something from Mora, you might wait till Monday or Tuesday. Because Mora has, every year for the last three years, pretty much put everything on sale the week before Christmas. The only downside is, if you get closer to Christmas the more likely it is you might not get it by Christmas if you want it for a gift. But the Companion Heavy Duty Fixed Blade, it is a great knife. One note, if you look at the negative reviews on Amazon for it, they are almost all 100% complaining that it rusted. It's so cheap, it rusted. That's because you're retarded. You're a moron. It is a carbon steel knife. Says so right in the description. Carbon steel, if not cared for properly, absolutely positively will rust, okay? That means it has to be fully dried and lightly oiled after every single stink can use. Over time, many of these knives will develop an oxidized patina, and as that happens, they will become not immune to rust, but they won't just rust right away all the time. I, with these types of knives, I'm never looking for that knife to be mirror-polished, shiny, and look good forever. This is a working knife. I make my own patina on these knives. I use uh, simple, cheap white vinegar to do that. And the way I choose to do mine, I will take a paper towel and I will wrap it around the blade. And I will dip that in white vinegar so that the paper towel is saturated in white vinegar. And I will leave that on the blade for, you know, an hour. And then I will take it off, wipe it off, and take a look at it. I might do that process three or four times the first time I do it, and it will form a gray kind of gunmetal primer patina as the acid reacts with the steel. And it is a lot like bluing a gun. It is not the same as bluing a gun, but it is a lot like bluing a gun. It is a controlled type of rust, a different type of oxidation than what we think of as rust that preserves versus damages the steel. It still needs to be oiled. When you sharpen it, the edge itself will still not have a patina because you will expose metal when you sharpen it. The edge will still be prone to rusting. If you don't want a knife that needs the extra care, then you want a stainless knife, not a carbon knife, okay? So, there you go. Just a little education on that for those people that are, well, they're special children, we'll just say. They don't understand why steel rusts. And, and before we get to our song of the day, just a real quick update. Uh, I've been talking to uh, Daniel over at ButcherBox. We talked about ButcherBox today and and, and kind of why I support him. Um, and... I, one of the reasons I support them is when there's a problem, they fix it. And I recently had a customer get in touch with me and say, I had two boxes of Butcher Box screwed up. I won't get into why, but I sent it to Daniel. and said, I'll fix it. Tell me what you want in your next box that's on me. It's free. And uh, so I, I, I love dealing with them because they're like that. And uh just so happened that I got an email right about the same time uh, that they have come some like, holiday boxes available. And one of them... Really intrigued me. It's two hundred bucks, but it's a four-pound ribeye roast, so that's basically a prime rib roast, a boneless lamb leg five pounds, and a sirloin strip roast oh, uh, four pounds, and then some sausage and bacon. It was one hundred ninety-nine. So I ordered it, and it's just like an add-on holiday box. You can add it to your stuff, or you can order it as a standalone, whatever you want. And that includes shipping, by the way. Um, and uh, this is for holiday only. It's not the kind of thing they generally have month to month. And I, I, I sent an email to Daniel and said, hey, do you have like a page where I can promote this for you or something? He said, hell yeah, here you go. So that's one option. Another one is some flat iron steaks and ribeyes and pork tenderloin and stuff like that. Um, another one's a bone-in ham and a ribeye roast for 100 bucks. So you get a 7-pound spiral ham and a ribeye roast uh, for, for 99 bucks. That's a pretty good deal. And then there's a steak sampler uh, as well. And they could be a gift or you can wear them for yourself. Well, I should have reached out before I bought mine. He gave you guys a discount code to save 20 bucks and not MSB only. Uh, the discount code on any of those four boxes is survival in all capital letters. There's a link. In the show notes today, and and the discount code's right there, so you don't have to write it down or anything. Thing is, they're cutting off shipping on the 18th, so you probably got to get your order in like over the weekend or by Monday at the latest. Uh, but that's there, and it's 20 bucks off it if you're interested, and I just thought I'd throw that in, uh, since the email came in during the production of this show. Alright, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. So, our song of the day is the song that really Kicked this whole week off for me. And it turned out it wasn't Friday song, It was Thursday's song John Adam had for me. He had another one for me Friday from Queen that really isn't a Christmas song, but it's a winter song. I'm punting that to our kickoff show for 2019. I think it's a fantastic song. It's just a fantastic song for winter, not really for Christmas. But this week is all songs that are centered on Christmas, but not necessarily Christmas carols or Christmas songs. And today is from one of my favorite people of all time, and much like Jim Croce, yesterday a person who I feel, while he lived later in life than than Croce did, died way too soon. I think he was fifty six when he died. I'm talking about Dan Fogelberg. This song is called "Same Old Lang Syne," and "Lang Syne" basically means a a distant memory. And what's cool about this song is this is a true story. It's one of those things like Dan Fogelberg could sing the phone book and he would have had a hit. He was just that talented. He just took basically the story that happened, added, it changed a few things to make it rhyme or fit uh, music-wise, and, and just told a story and, and created a number one hit. It was released in 1980, but this is a true story that actually happened in 1975. What happened is Dan runs across his old girlfriend from high school. You know, six years down the road from high school, and he's become successful in music, and she's become a, a teacher in a school, and she's married... And she's not really completely happy with her marriage, but she's not ready to leave her husband. And they just kind of find each other at a convenience store in this little town they grew up in, and there they are standing there. So they decide before they're going to go home, and they've both been sent off by their family. He'd been sent off to get uh, whipped cream, and she'd been sent off to get, I don't remember what it is. It's in the song, though. And, and so they go, we'll go get a bar and get a drink and talk, since we haven't seen each other in six years. And there's nobody open. This is like Christmas Eve. So they find a liquor store, and they go buy a six-pack of beer. They sit in the car for two hours, and they talk about their past and their present. She reveals some things to him, and nothing really happens, though. At least that's the story from both sides. Dan really didn't talk about this song much, other than to acknowledge that it was a real song at one point in his life. Uh, She kept quiet. Uh, because she respected his he was a very private person, and you know two years after the song came out, he got married, so you know she didn 't want to put any stress on his marriage because of this old flame type thing. but if you listen to the song, the reality is that after they spend two hours talking about all the things they could talk about there 's nothing left to say, and they 're right back where they were when they you know walked away from each other six years ago there 's no romance to rekindle, and they 're back to that same feeling of pain they had six years earlier when they each went their own separate ways it's just not for them but yet the lady says it's a cherished memory and there's her entire side of the story which is perfectly in alignment with with the song itself uh has been told since he passed away and you can read it i have a link to it today if you want to know more about this woman and who she is and and just the story itself I think the lesson in this for us, you know, I said yesterday that a lot of times people repair relationships around the holidays. And specifically with romantic relationships, yesterday's song was about, let's give it one more shot. And I said the, the danger with that, when you take that approach with somebody, is they may not be in the place that you're in. This song kind of shows another danger. Neither of you may be. Neither of you may be. And sometimes that old relationship that just ended, and not necessarily in bad terms, it just, you know, we were kids. We have this romantic notion in our brain about what it would be like one day if we were back with that person. Sometimes maybe it's better for that image to just live as it is because seeing that person again may destroy it. They won't be the person you remember. There's no way. You won't be the same person a year from now that you are today. If that if that memory is 20 years old, that person's a totally different person. They're still that person, but there's so much more about them that is now that wasn't then. And then the other side of it, maybe it's a good healing. I think in the case of this song, it was. It was the finality to something that prevented it from being a what-if, and let it be what it was. And life is full of gambles. And when we take the uh, the, the stance that we're going to go back to something, we may find it was not the way that we left it. It makes me think of even things beyond relationships. There's a big part of me that really wishes in, in, in 2001 that I I did not take the job I did for Fluke Networks, not because of the way that it worked, or actually Microtest at the time, and Fluke bought us, uh, not because of that whole buyout and everything. I mean, that's all water under the bridge, and it worked out for the best. But it's the only time in all these years that I've been back to Pennsylvania to where I grew up, and so much changed. And that place, the places I hunted are now housing developments and strip malls, and, and and the town that I remember, all the old people that I knew that, that kind of held the culture together are passed away and gone. And heroin fills the streets now. Um, there's so much about it that's just, it's, it's what it was, but it's not. And it will never be that again. And part of me wishes I had never known. That it just always lived that way in my heart. But reality is things can't always be that way. So with that, we've wrapped up another week. We have one more week ahead of us. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.
0: She didn't
3: like to lie I said the years
5: had been a friend to her That her eyes were still as blue But in those eyes I wasn't sure if I